Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 108 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Traveling with Lime, an interview with Jeremy Scott Foster. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a fascinating young man. He's a travel blogger, but unfortunately, he's had two different Lyme disease journeys. He was successful in bringing his Lyme disease journey into remission the first time, but unfortunately, he went through a set of challenges that resulted in him getting Lyme disease a second time. That's right, Rich. Jeremy spent over five years traveling the world until he suffered a Lyme disease relapse. Since then, he spent his time working on rebuilding his body using natural and alternative therapies like ozone therapy, and more recently, he's been using peptide therapy, which he's had major success with. So Matt, let's offer a warm Tick Boot Camp welcome to Jeremy Scott Foster. Hey, Jeremy, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Well, really blessed to have you. So Jeremy, can you share with our listeners where you live? I live in Los Angeles as of just a couple of months ago. Oh, congratulations on your move. Thank you. It was uh, quite the journey to get here. So Jeremy, what do you do for work? I'm a travel photographer and I do digital marketing in the travel space. And how long have you been doing that type of work? Full time, I've been doing that since about 2015, which is basically when I, I was diagnosed. Uh, prior to that, um, it was more of a side hobby. So Jeremy, let's talk about your first contact with uh, ticks and Lyme disease. When's the first time you began to show symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease? Sure. So I think that I was about 19 or so. So it was somewhere in that age range. And uh, my, my best guess is that I got bit in my own backyard. I grew up just north of Boston. And um, every summer, I would go to a lake house in New Hampshire with my father. And while I was up there one summer, I started exhibiting extremely severe symptoms, which essentially left me completely bedridden and uh, I was experiencing drenching night sweats and extreme light sensitivity and brain fog and all the other typical symptoms and I really didn't know what was going on and I ultimately called my mother and was like hey uh, something's happening and she knew already right off the bat she, she was able to hear those symptoms and knew exactly what it was. And, and I think that, you know, she has spent enough time in the New England area to be able to recognize that it was Lyme disease. And so I was very fortunate in that regard to essentially get a diagnosis almost straight away. So now let's talk about that point in your life and what you knew about ticks and Lyme disease at that point in your life. Where were you living and what did you know about ticks and Lyme disease? So yeah, at that point, I was uh, still living with my family just north of Boston. And what I knew about Lyme disease was probably on par with, yeah, what, what the general public, I think, knows about Lyme disease, which is very little. And um, I really didn't know that it could be a chronic illness. I didn't know that it could be long lasting. I really didn't know anything about the symptoms. And at, at that point, you know, I was, I was 
I'm guessing about 19 or so. I'd have to do the math. And um, also didn't really, you know, at, at that age, you don't really think about the, the, the future of the long-term repercussions. And so all I knew was that, oh, okay, well, this is Lyme disease. And so time to uh, do some treatments. Now, how did you learn what you did know? Did you, did you learn about Lyme disease in school? Was it something that was discussed um, in your family? Or was it just sort of very general knowledge that, uh, you know, some people get sick from tick bites? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was, it was just very, very basic general knowledge. I mean, there, there's no education about it. There's no conversation happening about it, you know, on a, on a public level, on a health level, um, or a public health level. Um, and so what I knew about Lyme disease at that time was very little. And everything that I've learned about Lyme disease since then, in the past yeah, 15 years or so, has been purely through my own research, through working with doctors, um, and through talking to other people like yourselves. So where were you in your life at that time? Were you in college? Were you, uh, what were you doing at that stage in your life before you showed your first symptoms of your tick disease? Yeah, so I was in college and um, I was just getting ready. I was actually transferring schools right around that time. And I was, <laughs> I was transferring to UMass Amherst, which uh, as you may know is is also known as ZooMass, one of the largest party schools in the U.S. And, or it was at the time anyway, I, I'm not sure about it anymore. But um, I was just getting ready to transfer in there and I was on a year-long antibiotic program. And so I was quite bummed at the time to be going to a party school and be on antibiotics and not be able to really go out and party at that, at that age. So that was um, a little bit of a disappointment, but I uh, stayed steady with my treatment and was on antibiotics, oral antibiotics, and also Mepron for Babesia for about a year. And at that point I had, by, by the end of that year, I think I just kind of fell back into regular life. I, I didn't really think about Lyme beyond that. And I just sort of assumed that I was good again. Jeremy, I want, I want you to walk back to before you began treatment, because I want to explore that with you in a little more detail. But I'd like to know, yeah. you know, what were your goals? What were your educational pursuits? Where did you, where did you dream to be prior to showing the symptoms of your tick disease? Oh, I don't have a clue. The, uh, I, you know, I, I've, I've always been the type of person who, um, <laughs> let's just say I'm not very good at planning. And so I'm, I'm the type of person to just roll with the punches. And at that age, I think I was still really just trying to discover what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was, I was very upset when, when uh, I became a junior in college and I was forced to choose a major because I still didn't know. And um, yeah, I, I really, I, at that point, I was still trying to figure a lot of things out. So 
I can't say that I, I had a particular purpose or plan or goal at that stage in my life other than doing the typical college path and, you know, somewhere along the way you're supposed to figure it out. And so I was kind of just waiting for that light bulb to go off. And uh, before that light bulb ever went off, I started showing symptoms. So that put a little bit of a wrench in my plans. So, Jeremy, it sounds to me that you were enjoying the educational and social experience of going to college and that you wanted to enhance your social experience by going to a school that may have given you a greater social opportunity. Great way to synthesize it, yes. <laughs> so you have this plan to go to uh, UMass Amherst, which, by the way, one of my law school roommates graduated from UMass Amherst, and he loved that school. Um, oh, great school. So you were, you were planning to enhance your social opportunities, and now you're sick, and uh, you're on antibiotics for a year. And, I, and before we explore that in more detail, tell us how you got on the antibiotics. So your, your mom was able to quickly identify your symptoms, and I'm assuming she recommended that you work with a particular doctor. Share that part of your journey with us. Yeah, that's exactly right. She herself actually has had her own run-in with Lyme and I think was, was, so she already had the Lyme connection and she already had worked with some doctors. And so she was able to connect me directly with somebody who uh, put me on antibiotics right away. So I would say we caught it pretty quickly and took a pretty drastic approach in terms of treatment. So Jeremy, your mom had Lyme disease. Um, do you believe that you suffered your Lyme disease because you were bitten by a tick that you never discovered? Or do you believe that you may have had Lyme disease passed on to you in utero from your mother? That is a very good question. And it is something that I have wondered for a very long time, um, you know, especially as I continue to improve now, currently, it's a question that I think about often, you know, was I ever fully healthy? Uh, did I grow up with this my entire life? And I honestly just don't know the answer to that question. Well, you, you had your crash when you were 19. Tell us what your health was like prior to that. Were you a sickly kid? Did you have symptoms which you now look back and think perhaps that would have suggested that you had uh, Lyme disease for your entire life? What, what was your, your childhood experience like? You know, I would say I was probably, I was, I was the poster child of health at, at that. I mean, you know, partying aside, I was, I, I had a very, very strong immune system. Um, I was at the gym all the time. I, uh, I, I yeah, I did CrossFit. I was um, very healthy, active, um, lots of energy. So it's kind of, it's tough to say. So you're, you're at the um, vacation home with your dad and you get sick. Um, yeah. Assuming you, you didn't find a tick at any time just prior to you having this uh, physical crash when you were 19. Right, yeah, so it, it was, um, 
I think my mother's my mother's wedding, which we held in our backyard, and um, we lived in a very foresty, woodsy area. And uh, at some point during the reception, my best guess is that I got bit by a tick, though I don't recall ever uh, seeing a tick on me. I don't ever recall a bullseye rash or anything like that. And it wasn't until I would say about a week later when I was on vacation with my father that the symptoms started to exhibit and they hit me like, like a bag of bricks. So now your mom is able to help you diagnose your illness very quickly and she recommends a particular doctor. Can you share with us what the experience was like seeing the doctor and what treatment protocol was recommended? So I actually never saw the doctor. This was a doctor who treated me um, via phone because I think that was the only Lyme literate doctor that we knew of. And so it was the only person that we thought to call. And he had treated my mother in person and um, we called him up and went through a general diagnosis and I continued to see that doctor for the following year and, and he helped with my treatment immensely. Did there come a time that you took a diagnostic test? And I don't just mean the information that you would give to a doctor for a clinical diagnosis, but did you ever take any tests to diagnose um, your Lyme disease? Yeah, we did the uh, standard lab core test which came back positive and that was a pretty clear actually you know i'm trying to think if that was the first time or the second time that was the second time to be honest with you the first time around i'm not really sure that was a long time ago and my brain's been through a lot since then I can't honestly remember what lab tests were done. Um, I, I, I want to say, I know that we did do blood tests. I don't remember through which lab. I don't remember what led to the initial diagnosis. Uh, I don't remember if it was positive or negative because as we know, there can be false negatives. Um, but I know that he did at least diagnose me with Lyme and Babesia at the time. Okay. So the doctor utilizes a number of different tests, some of which you don't particularly recall, and he comes to a clinical diagnosis and he begins to treat you. What treatment regimen did the doctor use? It was purely antibiotics and mepron for the Babesia, and, which is an anti-malarial. So those actually proved to be quite helpful. And on the side, I also started doing some energy work. And, you know, I grew up, my mother's pretty uh, earthy, crunchy, sort of, sort of granola type person. And so she got me connected to some people who were doing um, Reiki and other types of things to move energy around the body. And so we were using some herbs and things that uh, was really not prescribed by the doctor, but just sort of done 
in addition. And so I did uh, those treatments about once a week for the duration of that year that I was on antibiotics as well. So now, what form did the antibiotics take? Were you taking them orally? Were you taking, was a port installed? Um, how, were you, how were you taking your, your antibiotic treatment? Yeah, purely, purely orally. Uh, it was pills. The mepharon is a liquid, um, which to me actually tasted really, really good at first before, you know, until about six months in when it started to taste really, really bad. I don't know if you guys have ever had uh, had to take mepron, but it's vanilla flavored, they say. And it's, it's not so bad, actually. So what impact did your now antibiotic treatment have on your new college experience at UMass? Yeah, as far as I knew, I was good to go after that year. And when I was done with the antibiotics and, and the anti-malarial, I just sort of fell off them and I fell right into typical college life. And I was, um, you know, your average, um, your average C student at the time. And, uh, you know, I'd show up late for class and I'd go out partying. Um, and, uh, and it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. So I had, uh, I had, I had no real problems with Lyme, um, I should say I, I, I graduated with much higher grades than, than just C's, but um, that was, that was the, the feeling of my experience there. And, and honestly, for the next 15 years, as far as I knew, I was past it. Let's take one more second to focus on what the year was like when you were taking the medications for Lyme disease. Did, did um, the medication work immediately? Were you able to think clearly during the course of that window of time? And did it have any impact on you either socially or intellectually when you were spending your first year at UMass? I'll be honest with you, I really don't remember. What I, what I remember more about is is the current diagnosis and the current journey that I've been on. That diagnosis 15 years ago feels like so many lifetimes ago that I honestly just have such a small amount of recollection, small amount of recollection. So, so it's kind of tough to answer that, sorry. I understand. No, but uh, so you, you had a, a one year treatment protocol and then you went back on your pleasure path. You went back to being the college kid that you wanted to be and you enjoyed your experience at UMass in the way that you had hoped you would when you transferred to that school. Yeah. So you graduate and after you graduate, what uh, was the next chapter in your life? So I graduated in 2009. I was supposed to graduate in 2008. So I was on the five-year college plan. I was that kid. And uh, 2009, as we all know, was the recession. And so I graduated into a very poor job climate. And at that stage, I started working some contract jobs because that was about all I could find. And it really just wasn't fulfilling. I wasn't getting paid enough. Uh, I didn't enjoy the work, and somebody planted this seed into my head that I should just go travel. 
and I had no obligations. I had, no, you know, nothing tying me down. And it occurred to me that if the United States is having a financial crisis, it did actually make more sense to go to a country that wasn't. So I decided to just pack it all in. I sold a whole bunch of stuff that I did own and I bought a one-way ticket to Australia. And that began my travel journey, which has um, shaped the last 10 years of my life. So now how was your health at that time? You graduated from college, you now decide that you're going to start this uh, travel journey. How were you feeling physically when you decided that you were gonna go to Australia? I feel great. I feel fine. I have, I have no indication like Lyme disease is completely off my radar at that point. I don't even think about it. As far as I know, I'm back to 100%. And I don't, yeah, and I, and I, don't, I don't give it a second thought. I, I'm back to just living, living normal life uh, or, or what I think is normal life. I, you know, I look, looking back on it, I have no idea if I was being affected still at that time. It's certainly possible, but as far as I knew, everything was normal. So for how long a period of time do you believe you were at that 100%? A good 10 years. And what were you doing during that 10 year window where your health was 100% good? I was traveling, man. I was, I was all over the world. I, was, I, I went to Australia. I lived there for a year. I worked my way around the country as a bartender. Uh, I went to New Zealand for a year, also worked my way around the country as a bartender. I taught English in China. I traveled all over Southeast Asia. I went to South America. I did a lot, a lot of traveling. And, and at that time, I, I really built up my skills as a cocktail bartender. And I was uh, very lucky to train under some, some of the, the best bartenders in the world, quite honestly. And um, that became my passion was craft cocktail bartending. And so I was doing that all over the world for many, many years until the inevitable. And uh, the inevitable is why we're having a chat today. So while you were doing your, um, during this 10 year window where you're doing your um, training uh, in the craft cocktail arena, were you flying from country to country? Mm-hmm, yep. And did you ever find your health, uh, did you ever find that your health was being impacted by air travel? Hmm. I don't think so. Not in regards to Lyme anyway. Well, uh, when you say not in regards to Lyme anyway, um, let's, let's walk that back. During that 10 year window when you were doing your traveling, did you have any health issues that you noticed after you had flown from one country to another or you had spent any period of time on an airplane? No. It, so the, the, the onset of the next round of Lyme disease took place, um, I was in where was I? I want to say I was in Macedonia. 
in Eastern Europe at the time. And that would have been five or six years in, but that doesn't relate to air travel specifically. So when did you first start um, to see the symptoms of what you now are defining as your second Lyme disease experience? Yeah, sure. So um, at this point, it's now 2015, <clears throat> excuse me. So we're about six years into the travel journey and, and the travel journey and the Lyme journey overlap. So we're about, we're about six years in um, and I'm in Macedonia traveling through Eastern Europe and I'm there with a girl and we are doing a little bit of an overland Euro trip from Greece to Germany. So we were taking the train all across Europe at that time and very, very slowly, and this is summer of 2015, very, very slowly, things just start to feel a little bit different. And I'm starting to feel really tired and fatigued and I'm having trouble concentrating and thinking and I don't really know what's going on, but I don't really think too much of it because I was leading a pretty unhealthy lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, what, what I felt as fatigue and brain fog, I assumed was just hangovers and things like that. So, you know, the, the onset was, was masked almost until I finally got to Germany and then ultimately finally got home. And it took, even then, it took a number of months for me to, to really recognize that something was not right. So walk us through the, your symptom development a little bit further. So you started having this, this brain fog, you know, trouble concentrating, all of which you attributed to just not living a healthy lifestyle, maybe partying a little bit too much, drinking a little bit too much. When did you realize this was more than just, you know, your typical, you're not taking care of yourself and, you know, living a, you know, pretty wild lifestyle? Yeah. So I thought that it was all just travel fatigue. And so I figured, you know, when this, when this Euro trip is over, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to get lots of rest and take care of myself and, uh, you know, allow myself to reset before my next trip. So that's exactly what I did. I went home and this would have been August, September of 2015, so end of summer. And I'm staying with my mother for a little while and catching up on lots of sleep because I'm really fatigued. And after about two weeks of sleeping for 14 hours a night, waking up at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I realized, okay, this, this isn't normal, actually. Like, this is too much, too much fatigue and too much sleep for too long of a period of time. This isn't, this isn't normal. And, and I, I still at that point didn't really know what it was. Um, and so I was kind of just, flailing about and, and doing my best to get through the days. And I remember one particular trip to the supermarket and I drove there 
And when I pulled into the parking lot, at the angle that I pulled in, I, I had the sun shining in my eyes. And I remember this feeling of, and this sensation of extreme light sensitivity. And that's when it dawned on me because it was a sensation that I was familiar with from my previous infection. And that's when I knew I was sitting in that parking lot staring at the sun and shielding my eyes from the sun. And I realized, oh no. So Jeremy, at this point I've you were here before. You were home with your, your family at this point and your mother has had an experience with Lyme disease and was the one who realized that's what you had the first time when you were 19. Did at any point prior to your realization that you had Lyme when you had this extreme light sensitivity, did your mom ever think that your extreme fatigue and other symptoms could have been Lyme? No, we all just thought that it was, it was travel fatigue. And now that you're, you're sitting in this parking lot and you have this, this revelation that I think I have Lyme disease again, what were your next steps? Next steps were uh, to go straight to an urgent care center um, because I've been basically traveling for years on end at that point. I hadn't established care with any you know, local doctors or anything like that. So the only doctor that I knew to go to was an urgent care center. So I went to an urgent care center and I had to literally beg them for a Lyme disease test. And they didn't want to give it to me. And I still don't really understand why. Um, I mean, I, I have my thoughts, but, but they told me, you know, oh, th this was in North Carolina. And they said, oh, we don't have Lyme disease. Uh, there's no point in giving this test. And I was like, guys, please, just give me a Lyme disease test. Give me all the other tests that you want to give me, but just add a Lyme disease test in there just to humor me. And a few days later, got a call from the urgent care center and said, yep, Jeremy, uh, your Lyme disease test came back positive, and we're going to put you on antibiotics for the next three or four weeks. Jeremy, you mentioned earlier that your mom had a one doctor you'd worked with, and you'd worked with that doctor when you were 19 via a telehealth call. So why did you choose to go to the urgent care doctor this time around instead of going back to your mother's doctor who diagnosed and treated you the first time? Well, let's say that the, the initial telehealth call wasn't 100% um, compliant. <laughs> so we, we decided to do things more the right way this time around gotcha and so um yeah yeah and you also alluded to that you had your suspicions as to why this urgent care would not run the Lyme disease test what were your thoughts at the time why did you really think they didn't want to run this Lyme test well my thoughts at the time were were quite different from what they are now um I think that I, at the time, I was just frustrated, and, and, and I really just didn't understand why, guys, it just, you know, it's, it's simple. Just, just draw some blood, send it into the lab. Easy peasy. And uh, now I realize that it's, you know, I, I would say Lyme is probably one of the most misunderstood diseases that we are, well, with the exception of, you know, what's, what's currently happening with the COVID situation. But um, Lyme is... is 
probably one of the most misunderstood, misdiagnosed diseases of our time. And I think doctors are quite hesitant to test for it because if they get the results, frankly, they won't know what to do. Unfortunately, that's a sad reality that, that many, of, many of us have had to face. So mm -hmm. I'm sort of kind of knowing the answer to this question before we ask it, but how did you feel after that three-week window of being on what I'd imagine was oral doxycycline that they prescribed to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they gave me three weeks. I requested four. They very reluctantly gave it to me. And... Um, I kind of assumed that, well, let me, let me, let me take a step back real quick. And, you know, I, what, one of the, the things that I think is kind of interesting and, and contributes to the story a little bit is when I received that call from the urgent care center, my, uh, I told my mother about it. And one of the most vivid memories that I have of that diagnosis is telling my mother the diagnosis and her just like falling on me and wrapping her arms around me in, in true motherly fashion and just saying, Oh my God, Jeremy, I'm so sorry. And she knew, I think what was in store for me. And I, I, I really didn't, you know, my, my first experience with Lyme disease was pretty innocuous. You know, I, I took some antibiotics and, went through the motions and then sort of just fell back into normal life. And at this time I figured like, Oh, okay, I'll just take some antibiotics and I'll be fine. But I think my mother knew better. And so, um, I moved forward with that line of thinking that I'll just take my antibiotics and I'll feel better. And about three weeks into that regimen, I was due to fly out to Cambodia at this point, I'm, uh, I've got a job, I've, I've got a gig with a tour company. Um, and so I'm, I'm working in travel by this time. So I've, I've, I'm, I'm bartending and I'm working in travel, sort of uh, doing both. Yeah, I'm doing both at the same time. And so I, I have this gig in Cambodia. So I jump on a plane and go I fly to Asia and I'm still taking the antibiotics and the assumption is that by the time I finish this round of antibiotics I'll be fine and I felt pretty good I was feeling good by the time I got on that plane and I assumed that when I got there I would just continue to feel better and I think as we all can probably guess at this point that is absolutely not how things played out. So Jeremy, you were you mentioned that you were feeling better three weeks in, good enough to go now go travel across to Asia to to work your next job. Was your fatigue better? Meaning, were you sleeping less? Were you feeling healthier? Was your energy back? Yeah. Yep. And yep. all that. Now, now that you're in Cambodia, you're working this this job. Now another week goes by, and you finish up your four weeks of doxycycline. Is that the point at which you started to go backwards and get sick again? Or was there a period of time that you remained healthy after stopping the four-week course of doxycycline? Oh, no. It was almost immediate. Um, and, and what I've learned since is the fact that um, 
you know, the, the, the symptoms that we experience from Lyme are our own immunological response. And antibiotics acting as immune suppressants essentially alleviate the symptoms. And so it was during, you know, it was at that sort of week three, week four period where I wasn't really experiencing those symptoms anymore because my immune system was being suppressed to a point where I wasn't, uh, you know, presenting or, or manifesting in, in any way. And so as soon as I went off them, my immune system kicked back in and totally took me down. And I remember I was in a small village in Cambodia doing some volunteerism work. And um, I now have some different opinions on volunteerism, but that's a, a whole nother conversation. But I was at the time uh, volunteering in a small village in Cambodia and I was sitting there, uh, I think in the mud, just playing with the kids. And I looked around me and again, I had that extreme light sensitivity and I got hit with this wave of fatigue. And I realized, oh no, it's, it's happening. And so I went to the tour leader who was also uh, my boss for that gig. And I said, look, I got to call it. I need to, I need to get to a hotel stat and I need to just shut off all the lights, climb into bed and just self-isolate. And that's when everything started to go severely wrong. So now you're, you're in another country, you're in, on another continent and you realize that your four week course of doxycycline didn't work. All of your symptoms come back. And now you're going back to the hotel, turning the lights off and basically trying to just get through this and get strong enough to get back home. It sounds like, so were you able to recover enough to make it back home or did you continue to decline in Cambodia? Not even, I wasn't even planning on going home because I had a plan and I'm, stubborn enough that I figured I got this like why not I you know nothing can stop me I that was that was my mentality and so I was actually in Cambodia for for this gig which I I just really pushed my way through it and I I was able to complete it with extreme difficulty but I but I did do it and then my next plan was to go to Bangkok because there was a travel conference happening. So I went to Bangkok and the plan was to be there for a couple of months and I was gonna meet up with some other friends and we were gonna go travel around Thailand for a little while and it was gonna be great. So I go to Bangkok and I'm at this conference and same thing happens. It's, you know, it's, it's lunchtime, it's like noon, one o'clock. And I look around me and I just get this wave of dizziness and fatigue and I realized again, oh no, here we are. So I just abandon all hope and I go back to where I was staying at the time and just hole up in this tiny little apartment in Bangkok and um, try, you know, and at that point I'm calling my family and I'm trying to figure out what are the next steps, what do I do here? And luckily Bangkok has actually a really great international hospital. And so I went to this hospital because really that was my only option and I don't think at the time I really understood the difference between a regular doctor and a Lyme literate doctor and so to me just going to a regular doctor was sufficient and 
Um, you know, I should also point out that in Thailand, nobody knows what Lyme disease is. And I mean, even, even in the U.S., nobody knows what Lyme disease is, but, but definitely not in Thailand and around Asia, uh, even though it's, it's been found there plenty of times, it's not prominent or prevalent enough that anybody knows what to do about it or how to diagnose it or anything. So I'm sitting in the, do- in the, the, <laughs> the doctor's office with an infectious disease specialist. And I tell him, look, I already know that I have Lyme disease. I tested positive for it, and the symptoms are coming back. And so he literally goes on Google, and he types in how to treat Lyme disease. And he pulls up WebMD, and it says, okay, to treat Lyme disease, two weeks of intravenous recession. And there you go. So that's your protocol. So I spent the next two weeks at the hospital or commuting into the hospital every single day for uh, intravenous antibiotics. And I felt absolutely no shift during that time. Jeremy, I want to ask, so when, when you left Cambodia and went to Bangkok, did you think that your body was just healthy enough and strong enough to fight this off on its own? You mentioned that you were stubborn and you felt you can get through this. Were you doing anything or taking supplements or changing your, your routine at all? Or were you just thinking that, hey, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm going to get over this and I'm just going to keep going on and it'll get better. Yeah, I was just young and naive and, and, and invincible, you know, at, at that age, we're all invincible, right? Nothing can touch us. And, and that was very much my mindset. And uh, especially as a, let's say, chronic traveler, I fell very easily into that mindset. Um, because when you, yeah, when you're traveling for, for extended periods of time, you fall into this very uh, free lifestyle where kind of anything goes and, and nothing can touch you. And I loved it. It was great. And, and I didn't want anything to rain on my parade. So I really just assumed that I was going to be fine and didn't give it another thought. Why do you think that the oral doxycycline helped you feel better pretty quickly enough, you know, enough so that you can go and travel across to another continent, but now you're in Bangkok and you're getting IV rocephin, which is far stronger and it had no impact on your health at all. That is a fantastic question. I never thought about that before. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I really, um, I have no idea. You mentioned earlier that, that the antibiotics sort of weakened your immune system. Do you think that's because the antibiotics killed good and bad bacteria in your gut and your gut is 70% responsible for your overall immune health? Is that what you're referring to? Um, I guess so. I, I can't, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak to the, to the, um, you know, 100% the function of antibiotics, but I, I do, I know that they act as an immunosuppressant and killing off bad bacteria in the, uh, sorry, killing off good bacteria in the gut probably plays a very large role in that. And did any, I, I'd imagine the answer is no based on that answer, but no doctor, uh, whether at home or, or abroad, recommended to do anything to counter that damage your, your good gut bacteria, such as taking strong probiotics or doing anything supplement wise to counter that damage being done by the antibiotics? 
Absolutely not. So you talk to us a little bit what this was like, Jeremy. So here you are, you're in Bangkok, you're at, you know, was probably the best hospital there. They're Googling how to treat your Lyme disease, which is just scary. I mean, it's even worse Insane. than it is here in the States. And they're giving you the traditional IV Rocephin antibiotics and you're not getting any better. So what was that like? What, what were you thinking? How was that for you emotionally? It was pretty rough. I was renting a super cheap, really small little studio apartment. And um, I was all by myself in a different country where I couldn't get medical treatment that I was, um, you know, that I, that I would have liked. And, you know, Bangkok is far enough away from home that, that the, making the decision to come home was a big decision in itself. And it was actually almost easier to just stay in Bangkok and follow this treatment protocol because, you know, we had access to antibiotics and what seemed like a good enough treatment plan. Um, and, you know, the, the emotional experience was that it was, it was very lonely. It was very isolating. It was very confusing. I was passed around at that hospital from doctor to doctor, from, from infectious disease specialists to psychiatrists to uh, nutritionists. Um, and... I really didn't know which way was up at that point. And my daily routine was waking up at about probably 11 a.m. and jumping on a motorbike taxi, going to the hospital, getting my IVs, seeing some doctors. I'd stay there for a few hours and then I'd come back to my tiny little studio apartment all by myself. I'd shut off all the lights and try to watch a movie or something to keep me occupied. But of course my brain is, is so far gone that I can't even follow the plot of anything that I'm watching. You know, I can't read a book. I can't watch a movie. I can't do anything to even occupy my time because my brain just can't comprehend anything that's going on. Uh, and, and it can't even follow a story. You know, that's how far gone I was. And so I spent two months basically following that schedule and it wasn't until yeah about the end of those two months where I, I had to make the decision to finally come home and once you made that decision to come home did your family come and bring you back what was that like physically and I guess and emotionally for you to make that journey back home being so sick and not getting any better and just not having the brain capacity or the physical capacity to get yourself home it was really tough. It was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And a part of that, a part of the difficulty was really coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't invincible and something serious was going on and I didn't know how to fix it. And it seemed like nobody knew how to fix it. And so at this stage, my friend had actually just arrived in Thailand and we were supposed to spend a couple of weeks traveling around together. And literally on like the second or third day, 
I had to sit down and have a chat with him and say, look, bud, I'm sorry, but something is wrong. I don't know what it is, but I got to go home. And he did his, the rest of the Thailand trip by himself. And he had a grand old time. And I booked some flights coming home. And I actually, you know, I, I really needed the emotional support to make that decision. And so I remember speaking with my mother and talking to her and telling her what I was feeling, what my symptoms were, just my, my, my general experience. And I remember sitting on the sidewalk in, uh, in th- I, I'm sitting on the sidewalk in front of the security guard and I'm sobbing, I'm bawling my eyes out. And I don't understand why. I don't know why I'm so sad and so depressed and, and, and crying. And, you know, I mean, like, and so emotional, that's, that's really not, that's not like me. And I'm, I'm on a call with her and I'm telling her that it feels like the entire world is just collapsing around me. And I don't know how to explain it any more than that, but it just felt like the walls around me were crumbling. And my mother was the first one to say, well, Jeremy, that doesn't sound very good. I think you need to come home. And I really needed that push to make that decision. And I needed that third party validation to recognize that this was something that, that was, was, you know, much more serious than I was willing to initially admit. So we bought some plane tickets home and we linked up with a Lyme doctor in Denver. And so he was able to squeeze me in uh, a few days later. And so I actually flew to Denver instead of back to North Carolina. I flew to Denver to see this doctor. And, you know, remember, I'm, I'm traveling at this time, so I can go anywhere. I can be anywhere. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But I went to the only Lyme doctor that I knew. And so uh, I had a few days before that appointment, so I actually stopped in Hawaii at the time. And I, I went to Kauai, and I had a couple of beach days. And, you know, it felt like crap, of course, but it was nice to at least, you know, feel the, feel the ocean water on my, on my skin at the time. And, and then finally arrived in Denver where I met face-to-face with my first of many Lyme literate medical doctors. Was this doctor's appointment eye-opening for you? Is this when you had the realization that Lyme can cause depression, it can cause anxiety, and these are actually symptoms of Lyme disease, and when you realize how severe it can be, or did that still occur at a later point from this first initial visit? Good question. I think, I think that I, I think I was still coming to terms with what was going on. And even though this Lyme doctor made it very clear that these were all symptoms of Lyme, I don't think I fully understood the extent to which Lyme can affect, let's say, every 
like every system in the body, uh, emotional, you know, which is linked to hormonal and, and, and beyond. So I was being told, but I don't think I really internalized it. Not at that point anyway. And what was this doctor, this long motor doctor's plan for you now that you went through, it sounds like two months of IV antibiotics, you went through a month of oral antibiotics and you're continuing to decline. What were your next steps as far as treatment is concerned with this new Lyme litter doctor? Yeah, so he, he said, okay, look, you're clearly not getting better from Lyme treatment alone. So if it's not, you know, so that means we've got to start looking at other things. And it was at that point that I realized we were, we were really peeling back an onion here. So if it wasn't Lyme, we looked for the next thing. And we found that it was also Babesia. And we did treatment for Babesia for a long time. And I know I'm going to get ahead of ourselves here, but we did treatment for Babesia for a long time. And then I still wasn't getting better. And um, so then we, we looked further and found Bartonella and treated Bartonella and still wasn't getting better. And so it was this cycle almost on repeat of, treat, don't get better, look for the next thing, treat it, don't get better, look for the next thing. And that was essentially the, the course of the next couple of years, I would say. So Jeremy, all of these other diagnoses after Lyme were other tick-borne diseases. So there were other co-infections or infections you can get from a tick bite, correct? Now, did any other doctor prior to this Lyme literate doctor discuss with you the, the probability or possibility that you could have other diseases aside from Lyme from that initial tick bite? No, the urgent care center that I went to initially ran some tests for Rocky Mountain spotted fever and some other things like that. that those all came back negative. Um, but nobody else had, and I, I think that's, also part of, you know, the, the urgent care center believed that there was a higher likelihood that I would have Rocky Mountain spotted fever than Lyme disease. But, um, you know, moving, moving forward to this doctor, no, no, nobody, nobody had, had uh, ever indicated that there could be something else that went along with it. And, and the treatment for these other diseases or infections from the tick bite were different. So it sounds like you, you had a different treatment modality for each other infection caused from a tick bite. Is that accurate? Yeah. And uh, they would all, they all generally centered around antibiotics. So after you've gone through now several years of testing and okay, there's something else, we're going to give you another type of antibiotic and maybe some combination therapy antibiotics. Now you're a few years in, you're still not feeling better. At what point did you realize, all right, this isn't working. We got to try something different here and change from an antibiotic treatment method to some alternative method. So it almost, it, it actually didn't quite happen like that for me. I, I, I reached a point where with this, with this one individual doctor, uh, it, was, it was about a year, maybe a year and a half of treatment. And I wasn't getting better with him and with his protocol and so it wasn't that i decided to start trying a different uh modality 
but rather I decided to try a different doctor because I know that every doctor has their own uh, their their own individualized approach. And so I started seeing a uh, relatively well-known Lyme doctor in Washington, D.C., who moved forward with a very, very, even even more heavily antibiotic-focused approach. And that protocol was, I like to call it pretty much just scorched earth protocol, where I was taking probably five or six different antibiotics at the time, uh, or, or at a time. And I actually did start to see some great results from that. So, you know, whereas the previous doctor was acting in a very, I almost want to say reactive way, where I'd say, oh, these are my symptoms, and then he'd provide uh, say, oh, okay, well, if, if you're experiencing this, then you should have that. This other doctor that I saw put together a very strict protocol for me, and it didn't matter how I was feeling or anything like that. It was all about kill this freaking bug. And I saw that doctor for another couple of years and actually made some really great progress with him. Uh, I, I, I won't lie. We, we, we did some good, and it was all antibiotics. And um, even though we made a lot of progress in, in the process, we absolutely wreaked havoc on my gut. And um, I think that's when a lot of other problems began. So it sounds like what was needed to almost start to kill off some of these, these different bacteria that were in your body from multiple different infections caused you to now damage your gut. So you had to first attack and, and kill off this, this bacteria. And then once you felt better from that, you had to address your, your gut now, which was damaged as a consequence. So looking back, do you think that was a good approach to do that scorched earth policy? Or do you think there was a, a less harsher alternative that could have helped you heal as well compared to the you know, strong, harsh antibiotics that he put you on? You know, for me, I think that that, that that was actually the best approach. I don't think it's the best approach for everybody, but I think that I needed it. And um, what, I've, what I've also learned, and as you well know, this is not a one and done um, type of situation. You, you know, this, this, is, this truly is a journey that's, you know, that's why we call it a healing journey or a line journey, because it's many, many years and it, it, it takes, it takes so many different shapes. And, uh, for me, the initial part of that journey needed to be, I think, just wiping out everything. And, um, we, I guess we didn't really wipe out everything, but we wiped out a lot and that had, great benefit and eventually I reached a point where I realized okay I've been doing this for long enough and this was really you know me learning to tune in to and listen to my body and I realized that and, and, and I just felt like I had had enough my body felt toxic I, I, I would wake up in the morning and I just felt gross and 
like icky. So I made the decision to stop seeing that doctor and to stop this protocol and to uh, start looking at, at alternative therapies. And at this point, did you go see a naturopath or an alternative doctor to help guide you with alternative therapies? Or did you sort of just research them and start taking these alternative therapies on your own? So at this point, I reached out, I, I posted something in a Facebook group asking for uh, doctor recommendations in the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I had moved to and was living at that time. And I got a great recommendation for another doctor. And so I went to go see him. And we started doing, oh gosh, I'll have to think about it. I want to say, did we do any antibiotics? I don't think that we did. I think we did a purely herbal approach. Uh, and he was very familiar with this other doctor and his protocol. And he said, great, like, it's good that I know that you did that because we have some healing that we need to, to address, you know, some gut healing that we need to address. Um, and we also need to kill off some bugs and we're going to do that in a different way. And so I got a great recommendation from some stranger on the internet. Gosh, I'll have to go back and find them and thank them. But I got a, a great recommendation from the stranger on the internet went to go see this doctor and we started a new treatment protocol and uh, have been through numerous iterations of different protocols. And I actually am still seeing that doctor to this day alongside a couple others, but um, he's been a core part of my team for the past few years. Jeremy, let's put this in perspective. So you were, you were pretty much crippled when you came back to the States and then you, you know, you, you still weren't getting better. And you went to this doctor in DC who you said actually did help and it, you, you feel is what your body needed. When you left that doctor to go to this more natural alternative approach, give us an idea of where you were with your health. What were you able to do that you weren't able to do when you first started this treatment, when you came back to the States? Like what was your quality of life at this point? At this point, I was still pretty much house-ridden. I, I couldn't really do a whole, yeah, I couldn't do much. Um, I was still very symptomatic, um, making progress, but still symptomatic and still non-functional. And, you know, I'm also trying to work at the time. And at this point, I've completely shifted away from the bartending, and I'm now working as a travel photographer and a travel blogger. And so all of my work is online, and um, I'm attempting to take these freelance gigs and, uh, you know, because i got to work in order to pay for my, my medical treatment. And I really just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do the work. I would get hired to write things or I would get hired to, uh, you know, create content or um, I would get hired for, for, for lot, lots of different things. I was very across the board in, in terms of the type of work that I was doing, but I, but I really couldn't complete any of it. So 
I started reaching out and hiring other people to actually just do the work for me. And so I would essentially just act as a middleman and pass off the work to someone else and uh, then, you know, do my best to edit and, and turn that content into my own and then deliver that to the client. And that's when I started to, um, in a way, build a business because uh, there's a very big difference between being a, you know, running business and, and working as a freelancer, whereas, you know, as a freelancer, you're getting paid for your time and for, for your work. But when you create a business, you can theoretically step away from that and the business still continues to run and operate without your input. So unbeknownst to me at the time, I was actually forced into creating a business that would be able to sustain me for years to come. Of course, this all happens while I'm in a completely non-functional uh, or, you know, it, it, you know, at the time it felt very non-functional and, and everything that I did would take three or four times as long, but I was able to do it somehow. And I think that I, I attribute that to just being stubborn. So Jeremy, let's talk about this new doctor you found from this, this console on the internet who pointed you in this direction to get some sort of alternative treatment. Now, what types of treatment besides antibiotics did you do now that you left this doctor in Washington, DC? So we started doing, um, we started doing herbal treatments and it was a much more naturopathic approach. And it was mostly supplements and herbs and tinctures. And we did, we did do some vitamin IVs alongside that as well. Um, but it was mostly just moving from pharmaceuticals to herbals. And that was the primary change with the new doctor. And we know from your pre-interview questionnaire that there's some other things you've did, and I may be getting ahead of us here, but you've tried ozone therapy and something called core synchronism and peptides. Was that later on in your healing journey? Did you pivot to another doctor or is this still, I know you mentioned you were with this, this naturopath still to the present date. Were these, were these treatment options brought in later on in time? Yeah. So those, the, the ones that you've mentioned uh, have, have all taken place since I started with that doctor. Um, some of them prescribed by him and under his care. And some of them were things that I just sought out on my own. Um, you know, the, the, the core synchronism is, is a funny one. That's, that's a, a treatment that I think, or, or a modality that I think almost nobody has ever heard of. And uh, I heard about it through another friend who happened to be ill at the time. And she was seeing this woman and, Core synchronism is all about using, and it's, it's energy work to release traumatic patterns from the body. And that could be emotional trauma. It could be um, genealogical trauma. It could be physical trauma, like, like a traumatic brain injury. And I, and I even know that there are actually some really interesting studies about um, traumatic brain injuries being linked to chronic Lyme disease. Um, and, I think that I've had a couple of TBIs 
in my past, actually, and so have wondered what sort of correlation there might be there. But uh, yeah, I did um, course synchronism, I did acupuncture, I did, uh, gosh, Reiki, I did cupping, I did, you know, literally anything and everything and spent an absolute fortune trying to get, you know, like just trying to find anything that would help. Um, and, you know, I, I continued to see this one doctor who I still continue to see. And, and the reason I continue to see him is because one of the things that we discovered is that really, you know, at a certain point, it was no longer Lyme that was the issue. It was no longer Babesia. It was no longer Bartonella. Uh, it was no longer Candida. It was no longer heavy metals. Uh, it was mold that was causing a lot of my issues. And this doctor that I was seeing is one of the uh, people who's doing research at the forefront of the field in terms of, of chronic inflammatory response syndrome and environmental illnesses. And so we actually, he had me do a neuroquant brain scan. And the function of that is to determine the pathways which are being triggered, which are triggering the inflammation. And so he was able to determine that, you know, it, so if, if you look at the neural font, you can see that there, there's one very specific pattern that is associated with Lyme, where you can see that Lyme is the thing that is triggering the inflammation in the brain. And then there's another pattern that you can see on the neural font which in which you can see that it's mycotoxins or mold that is triggering the inflammation in the brain. And that's when we realized that at this point, it was no longer any of these other things or, you know, those things may still be contributing, but the thing that was holding me back was mold exposure. And so that was kind of, that's when my treatment went from Lyme into, into mold illness. And it's been the mold illness for the past couple of years that has been the biggest struggle. And so that's why I continue to work with him uh, because he's, he's very good uh, with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or sick building syndrome or uh, mold illness. They can all be used sort of interchangeably. Um, and so I saw him for that. But I also knew that a lot of other damage had been done to my body. And that was something that I could just intuitively feel. And I knew that I needed something different and something that actually wasn't really being offered in the United States at all. And I had come across some clinics in Germany and some doctors in Germany, and I started doing some research around the Lyme Germany connection and, and there are some clinics in Switzerland and, and in that area of Europe where they're doing a lot of really interesting studies that, uh, and, and using a lot of interesting modalities that are not really being utilized in the United States and some of which have been actually banned by the FDA in the United States. So, in order to continue the treatment in the way that 
felt right to me in my body. I last summer went to Germany for to, to see uh, a one specialist doctor who um, she's also a naturopath and treats with homeopathy and ozone. And we can talk more about that treatment. Um, but that's when I decided it was time to start looking elsewhere because the treatment I was receiving in the United States just wasn't cutting it. So walk us through what it was like going to Germany for this additional treatment and what this treatment was and how it worked for you. So the, the fundamental pillars of this treatment in Germany were uh, ozone, biophoton therapy, and homeopathy. And, uh, oh, and also um, vitamin infusions and homeopathic IVs as well. And so it was very much a holistic approach and there were no, antibi uh, no antibiotics. There were, you know, everything was herbal, uh, ozone, so oxidative therapies, UV light, biophoton, uh, biofeedback, um, just a completely different type of protocol and something all-encompassing that I had not been able to find anywhere in the United States. And the, the, uh, the treatment was four days a week, every week. And um, I would go into the office for probably about three hours a day, four days a week. And I would get all these different treatments on a very specific schedule. And, you know, each day we go in and how are you feeling? And, and, you know, we really walk through that progress and really got to work with my doctor there as a team and, and, and almost as a cohort, right? Like as if we were in it together. And that's the type of attention that I think is missing from general line treatment where most doctors you see them you know once a month or or once every couple of months and they give you some things to try and then sort of check in later and and oh how did you do and there was none of that this was all very programmatic and systematic you know in true german fashion and uh i got to check in with the doctor four times a week and so she was really able to keep a pulse on my treatment and my progress and how i was doing during that time and that was something totally unique. And um, it was certainly difficult at the time. And uh, even, even uh, you know, culturally, Germany is a very different place. And um, receiving treatment under a German doctor poses some frustrations, I should say. But, you know, that's all just in the day-to-day. -day. And I was there ultimately for about five months receiving lots of these different treatments and left feeling like a completely different person. So Jeremy, do you think it was everything they did that contributed to that? Or was there one treatment method, whether it was the homeopathy or the, or the uh, biophoton therapy or the ozone, that was really the key to your healing? So I think I think that it was everything. I, I don't think that you can do just ozone and 
get better. I don't think that you can do just biophoton therapy and get better or just vitamin IVs and get better. It's that holistic approach and the combination of everything in aggregate all being administered together and on a schedule that ultimately helped. Now, with that being said, there were a couple of things that we did that I feel progressed my treatment um, far more than, than some, of, some of the other things that were, that were being administered. So um, I'm trying to think exactly what those things were. There was, um, we, we started, so we started with some IVs that were specifically developed for the gut. And I don't actually know exactly what was in it. And that was actually one of the kind of frustrating things about this Germany experience was that the treatment itself was um, almost sort of guarded as a secret. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I can understand why this, this doctor had people try to steal her, you know, quote unquote, steal her treatment and bring it back and, 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 uh, and, you know, create their own clinics based on it very unsuccessfully because they don't have the training that this woman does. And so I think she's, she's grown a little bit jaded by some of her experience with previous patients. Um, so she now kind of guards her treatment and she'll tell you, yeah, okay, this IV is for your stomach. And, um, I had to really dig to find out what exactly was in there. And I still didn't really get any solid answers, but uh, I, I know that one of the IVs that helped tremendously was actually IV L-glutamine. And that is very well known for helping to restore uh, your stomach and to help um, strengthen the tight junctions in the case of leaky gut. And so once we started focusing on the gut, I started to feel much, much, much better. And the other thing that we started were pept was, was peptide therapy. And uh, the peptide therapy that is administered in Germany is a little bit different from the peptide therapy that is administered in the United States and which I'm doing currently. But they were, let's call them baby peptides. And um, that, that peptide therapy and that gut therapy were, I think, the two things that really helped me to progress while I was in Germany. On top of everything else, the ozone, the biophoton, those were all extremely beneficial uh, and, and really helped to clean up a lot of the damage that had been done to my body internally. Jeremy, for our listeners, talk to us about what this peptide therapy is and why it helps you. So peptides are essentially just um, small chain amino acids that make up protein. They're, they're essentially the building blocks for proteins, and they are synthetically created. Now, I'm not a doctor, so I'm... I'm doing my best to explain this, uh, you know, from, from the layman's perspective, but they are essentially the building blocks for proteins, which are uh, synthetically created, which means you can target 
very specific things in the body. And one of the peptides that I'm on currently is called thymusin alpha-1, TA1 for short. And it helps to modulate the immune system. Um, it's anti-inflammatory and it upregulates the function of your thymus. And your thymus also plays a huge part in your immune function. And so the, the, what sort of turned me on to this was everything that happened in Germany. And, and in Germany, the, the shift in treatment was let's move away from trying to kill things, like from trying to kill the bugs in your body. And instead, let's, let's bring your, your body and your immune system and your entire bodily system, like, every, you know, every system in your body, let's boost those and bring those up to a point where they can actually start to work again. Uh, because previously after, you know, your body just gets hammered with antibiotics and all these herbs and all these things that are, they are doing damage to your body at the time. And so a lot of it was just repair work. And once we started doing that repair work, that's when the, that's when I started to see really big shift and uh, peptides specifically are a regenerative therapy. And so they you know, you can, you can target specific organs and specific parts of the body and upregulate their function. And so in this case, I can essentially increase the effectiveness of my immune system to fight off Lyme or any other pathogens that might be invading my body. And sure. so peptides, peptides are, are one of the, the primary things that I'm doing right now. and I'm finding a lot of really great success with them. Jeremy, you mentioned that peptides are a restorative therapy and you can target specific systems within the body, particular organs. So in that same area, have you ever considered using stem cells to restore your body? Considered it, will never touch them. And that's a personal decision. I've heard some pretty nightmarish stories from other individuals who are also sick and received stem cell treatments and things really did not go well. And I spoke actually to a uh, relatively well-known treatment center in California and um, asked them about their stem cell treatments. And I had, you know, I'm very lucky. I, I had my mother and my sister on the call. So my family, have all, they've been, you know, really supportive. And my sister works in healthcare. And so she knew all the right questions to ask. And we got on the phone with this, with this, stream, this clinic in this stem cell clinic in California. And we started asking questions about how the stem cells were administered and, and, and you know, how they were spun up in, the, in, in their machines. And, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know how it all works. But they said, oh, yes, everything is, you know, peer reviewed and third party tested and this and that. And, and we said, okay, great. Can you send us links to those studies, please? And they sent us like blog posts. And so basically they made all these claims about things that, you know, how, how, how stem cells were the future of medicine and this and that. And then, and, and they told us, you know, it's all backed up by this evidence. And we asked for that evidence and they failed to provide it. And, you know, again, I'm very lucky that my sister knew to ask for those studies and was also able to look at them and, and, and say, this is not the right kind of data. And so that's when, 
yeah, we, we pretty much decided that stem cells were just out of the question. And then after talking to other people about it and learning what other people had been through after receiving stem cell treatments, I just decided that is something I will never do. So after getting this peptide therapy and ozone therapy in Germany for five months, you returned home. Walk us through what that was like. So did you continue this, these therapies when you were home? And again, let's put this into perspective. What was your quality of life like now returning from Germany with these new treatments that helped you get to the next level of your, your healing process? So at this stage, you know, my, my treatment in Germany was only supposed to be three months uh, or three months at minimum. And I ended up staying for five because, you know, the, the way I saw it, I wanted to stay in Germany until I didn't need to be in Germany. Right. I wanted to be there until I had received the full effect of that treatment. And after five months, I feel like I had I had gotten there. And so I came home feeling like a completely different person. And I was, um, you know, I, I, I had so much more mental clarity and I had more energy and um, generally just didn't feel like crap on a daily basis. I felt like crap on a maybe every other day or every few days basis. And even after I came home, I think that the, the treatment that I had received, you know, over the course of five months continued to work as my body continued to process all of those treatments. And, and, you know, once your immune system has been boosted up, it keeps working. And so, uh, so I came home feeling so much better. And I, once again, met up with my doctor um, who I had been seeing for mold. And so I, I, I went to Germany knowing that I was not going to get treated for mold. And my doctor here in the States would be waiting for me when I got back. And so when I got back, I saw him and he said, great. Okay. So, you know, it sounds like they did a lot of great cleanup in Germany and we can start to work on the mold issue. And also in the meantime, Hey, why don't you go see uh, my business partner? This is my, my, my doctor speaking. And, and so his, um, uh, his business partner who, who, you know, they run a, a practice together and he is the one who then started me on, uh, peptide therapy and, um, or, you know, the, the peptide therapy in its, its current form along with we're you know, we're doing some biofeedback and bioresonance and he's, he also is actually German trained. And so we're doing a lot of homeopathy and it's funny. What I learned is that, that I think Southern Germany, which is where I was, is kind of the home of homeopathy. And, you know, people have been traveling to Southern Germany for thousands of years to receive holistic treatments. And, uh, I was very lucky to stumble upon someone here in the state who has a similar sort of treatment who is prescribing and um, treating me with some some really cool cutting edge therapies that unfortunately are not really so mainstream and unfortunately which the FDA is actively working to shut down and you know I have my own thoughts about why that's happening but uh, maybe that's a maybe that's a, a private conversation. 
Jeremy, you mentioned the peeling back the onion, and it almost seems like from listening to your, your story here that what was needed to treat your Lyme and other tick-borne diseases damaged other parts of your body, and then the treatment for that caused other symptoms, and this almost became the ripple effect to heal you, to treat the first, and then treat the damage from the treatment from that, and then to treat the damage from the treatment of that, and sort of this trickle effect of symptoms and, and ailments to, to treat. Is, do you, do you, is that how you view Lyme in your, in your mind? Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. I feel like I had to go through a period of absolutely destroying my body. And, you know, I'll compare it to chemo, right? Like, like if you have cancer and you go through chemotherapy, you're literally, you're, you're literally ingesting poison and, and, and putting poison into your body to kill off the cancer cells. And so I think that I had to do something along those same lines whereby I needed to really destroy my body and also everything in it before I could start to heal it. So I needed to go down into a valley before I could start climbing back up that hill. And you've obviously come a long way. You've peeled many of these layers away already over the past couple of oh, years. Layers. And you've, you've clearly made a lot of progress. So give us an idea of where you're at today. I mean, you've done a lot. What is your current treatment that you're on today? And what is your quality of life like today? So quality of life is uh, improving all the time. Honestly, I can't say enough good things about peptides. They've been so incredibly helpful. And um, there are, I think, hundreds of different peptides, maybe not hundreds, but there, there are a lot of different peptides that one can take. And I'm currently on let's see, one, two, three, four, four different peptides. And so those, uh, you know, I felt the effects immediately and those effects just compound over time. And it's been a few months that I've been on them and I've made such incredible progress with that. And I've also, uh, you know, since moved to California and the, the reasoning behind that was to get away from the damp, wet New England climate where mold is everywhere. And so I moved to Southern California to get into a drier climate where I wouldn't be exposed to mold. And so coupling the current therapies that I'm, that I'm receiving with, uh, you know, being now in a clean environment where I'm not exposed to mold and where the climate is, is nice and dry and warm, I'm feeling so much better. And I feel like I'm able to almost get back to work. And, um, you know, we're, we're all on lockdown at the moment due to the coronavirus. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that I am, you know, at this point where I'm starting to feel better and I'm like ready to get back out there and, and go back out and, and start to enjoy the fruits of my labor and the fruits of my, you know, my laborious treatment, frankly. And here we are now locked down on safer at home orders and can't leave the house. But it's also kind of funny because I spent a good probably two years house ridden. And so when the quarantine orders went into effect, I was like, you know what? 
I've been here before. I can do this. I, it's like being, being, you know, self-isolating and, and being in quarantine is like no problem for me. I feel like having Lyme and this whole chronic illness journey prepared me for this. So Jeremy, talk to us about how your Lyme disease journey has changed you in a positive way. Hmm. It, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's something that I am still deeply present in the work of, of trying to figure out, quite honestly. Um, I know for a fact that, you know, I'm living a much healthier lifestyle. Um, and it has also really sent me on a journey of purpose and trying to discover, I think, yeah, what I want to do, who I want to be. And as I alluded to earlier, those were things that I think never really were on my radar. Um, you know, when I was in college and, you know, I, I didn't feel the need for a purpose. And now I've really leaned into that and am discovering, you know, what gifts I have and, and what I'm here to provide and how I can be of service to the people and the communities around me. And so it's really led me to lead a much more intentional lifestyle whereby I eat uh, a much more healthy diet. I have drastically reduced alcohol consumption to nearly zero. Um, you know, I'll have, I'll have some wine on a very, very special occasion, but other than that, it's, you know, it's all, uh, you know, lots of good rest and lots of good food and really just tuning into myself and my body and giving it what it needs. And it's, it's been very transformational in that, you know, that is, that is obviously not the person that I described from before this whole journey began. And, you know, that is something that I'm still grappling with. The fact that the life that I led before is a life that I can no longer lead anymore. And that life that I had before, which I loved, I loved that, that freedom and that ability to go anywhere, do anything. That was taken away from me. And, you know, I, I like, I will never be able to live that life again. And grieving that loss has been tremendously difficult, but it's also been very eye-opening in that there are other ways to live life that can be more rewarding and which can serve a greater purpose for myself and the people around me. And I'm at a point now where you know, I, I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with all of this, but I know that it's going to be good and it's going to be, yes, different, but ultimately better. So part of this journey of purpose that you're now on has included you reaching out to folks in the Lyme community where you have posted regularly about your journey. You've written powerful blogs about this. Can you share with us what inspired you to begin the outreach element of your new journey? Yeah, so 
a few years ago, uh, or, or really when, when I was when I was first diagnosed, I kept I kept it all under wraps. I did not really go public with it, and um, I don't know. Maybe I was embarrassed by it. Uh, you know, chronic health issues and just health issues in general. It's not. They're they're not. It's not a normalized conversation, right? And it's it's health issues are 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 a topic that many people find to be taboo, and I think I did too. And so I spent the first at least year uh, with zero mention to really anybody in my circles about my health issues, and. I have, you know, I, at, at that point, I had, had built up a, a sizable online following on, you know, my on my blog, my social media channels, and uh, I really I wasn't able to consistently contribute to those channels in the way that I had before. And people started asking, like, Jeremy, what what's going on? Something has changed in the way that you're presenting. On online, like, are you okay? What's happening? And I realized at that point that I really needed to talk about it. And it, there was almost a tipping point where I realized, you know, like, like I've got to get this off my chest. Like, I, I got to just get this out there and tell people what's going on. And so I wrote this blog post about my experience. And you know, this was still very preliminary in my whole journey. And I and and this blog post went crazy viral in the Lyme communities, uh, all online, it was being shared everywhere, like tens of thousands of views a day. And I started getting inundated with emails, social media messages, people sharing their story with me and telling me about how Lyme has affected them, how Lyme has affected their family, and people telling me how, you know, and th people thanking me for writing that blog post because they then, they were then able to share that blog post with their families and with their friends. And they could say, please read this and you will understand what I'm going through. And, 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 and receiving that feedback was incredible. And, you know, hearing all these stories of how Lyme has totally uprooted people's lives, like hundreds of people's lives, and you know, across the globe, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, was just, it, it was a lot to take on emotionally. And I was absolutely not prepared for that. But I received so many great, uh, and just incredibly positive comments and emails as well, telling people, thank you for writing this because finally I feel understood. And, and my family finally understands it. And, and it was the only way that I think I could get my family to understand it and, and my people and my friends to understand it because I couldn't have, you know, an hour-long conversation with each and every person to explain what was going on. But when I put it down in the written word, that to me was the only way that I was able to express what I was going through. And the people around me started to get it. And then the, the, then other people who weren't around me found it and, you know, this article exploded and I realized, wow, 
there's work to be done here. And, you know, people need help. And there are a lot of people out there who are struggling and they don't have a voice that is quite as loud as mine. And what I mean by that is they don't have, you know, they don't have social media channels or an audience of people who are already sort of baked in, right? So I've built these travel social media channels. And I was able to reach hundreds of thousands of people that way. And other people just don't have that ability. And that is really what led me to realizing that I have something special that a lot of other people don't, which is that I have a platform and I can use that platform for good and to help spread the message. So that's a lot of where that feeling of purpose and almost duty comes from. So tell us what the future holds with your new purpose, because I think this has been a really beautiful transformation that you've gone through where you began to share with us that you were essentially a party boy who made a decision to go to college because there were uh, social advantages to you go to UMass, to, uh, to being a world traveler and focusing largely on all of the um, things you can enjoy as a world traveler, to now being a voice in the Lyme community. Tell us about how that feels to go through that transformation and what the future holds for you now that you've created this platform. I don't really know is the answer to that question. Uh, I'm still going through my own healing journey currently, and I'm very open and honest with my, my audience and my readership about that line journey. And, uh, you know, my channels are not strictly line focused. And to be honest, I don't want them to be. I don't want to be purely, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want line to define my existence and my identity. It can certainly be a part of it, but I don't want it to be the definition. And I think it's very, very important to raise awareness, but also not get so latched onto it that it becomes your entire being and your entire presence and your entire personality. And that's something that I've been very clear with myself about from the start is that I could have Lyme, but I would not allow Lyme to become me. And that is the same for how I choose to show up in a public way as well. Because also, you know, I don't think that I can just transition into talking about Lyme 100% of the time and continue to amass uh, followers and an engaged audience that, uh, that, that will that, that will learn something new about Lyme disease. Like I, I need to also provide other value and other benefit, and then also talk about Lyme disease on top of that and how that's affected me. And so weaving these parts together into my overall narrative, I think helps to spread the message even further. So let's weave these parts together. What advice would you give to a chronic Lyme who would like to travel so that they could travel and not find themselves ill after taking on the responsibility and the challenges associated with air travel and with uh, engaging in all the activities that they need to engage in to enjoy themselves in a foreign country? 
This is, a, this is a blog post that I've been meaning to write for a very, very long time, how to travel with Lyme disease. I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that um, other than be prepared. Um, you know, what, when I would travel, I, I would have an entire suitcase filled with supplements and medications. And obviously, TSA and, and Border Patrol kind of cocked their head at me when, <laughs> when I would send this through the scanner and they'd, they'd want to check my bags because, you know, what the heck is this? <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, the, the way that I had to travel changed dramatically. And uh, I was traveling with literally a suitcase of medication and another suitcase filled with food that I could eat because, you know, I was off gluten and dairy and, and I went vegan and I, I, I had very specific dietary requirements that meant I needed to carry food with me pretty much everywhere that I went. And, you know, also there's no denying the fact that traveling and especially air travel when you're sick is really hard on the body. And I don't think that when you're sick, you can, you can't have that same travel experience of, you know, you go somewhere for a week and you bop around from here to there and, and, you know, you just don't have that energy. And so I think it's really important to embrace just going slow and taking it easy. And instead of trying to see three different places in a week, just see one place in a week, go to that one place and, and give yourself that time to rest and, uh, you know, give your time, give yourself some, allow yourself to, to, to slow things down and to enjoy the experience of being somewhere new. Um, and, you know, bring everything that you can with you because uh, wherever you go, you may not have access to whatever medications or supplies you may need. So now let me ask you the final question we ask all of our guests. And that is, if God forbid tomorrow your mother called you up and told you that she was bitten by a tick, what advice would you give to her so that she wouldn't have a, either a relapse or go on a similar journey that you've gone on uh, as a chronic Lyme disease um, patient? It's a great question. And it's, it's funny because I've actually had a number of people since going public with my illness. I've had a number of people reach out to me and they'll say, Jeremy, I just got bit by a tick. And they'll send me photos of the tick still hanging off their arm or something. And, and they'll say, Jeremy, I just got bit by a tick. What do I do? And my advice is get six weeks of doxycycline immediately. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till the day after. Go now. And I try to stress that urgency above all else. Do not put this off. Like, this is not a drill. This is, this is real. And um, unfortunately, I've, I've, I've had that conversation with other people and they would say, oh, Jeremy, you're just being traumatic. But I've had this conversation with other, with then other people and they followed my advice to a T and I know specific, I, like I know for a fact that I essentially changed or saved their lives. And I don't think they know it and they'll never know it, but that's okay. Um, but they were able to get on, you know, four to six weeks of antibiotics right away. 
and that eradicated the Lyme for them. And, and, you know, luckily, I think they only got Lyme if there were other infections, like what it was, like it was the case with me, where, there, you know, it was also Babesia and, and Bartonella and, you know, oftentimes there's Ehrlichia and um, Mycoplasma and all kinds of other vector-borne illnesses. Luckily, in the cases of my friends, it's only ever been Lyme. And that round of antibiotics just eradicated it. And so my best advice is to be incredibly proactive and to take action immediately. And that it's not something to be taken lightly. And um, that it's something... Yeah, it's something you take very, very seriously and to to take action on as soon as possible because it could truly change your life in in a in a really drastic way. And I don't want to say in a worse way and I don't want to say in a better way, because there have been some really bad things that have come from this and there have been some really good things that have come from this. But it has changed things for me very drastically and while this is my journey and this is something that, you know, I'm even grateful for this journey that I'm on. It's not something that I would wish upon anybody else. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with guest Jeremy Scott Foster. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jeremy Scott Foster and his tick disease journey, please visit his Instagram page at Travel Freak. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Boot Camp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view and download the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.